welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Wonderful. What a beautiful start to a new year. If you would, you can turn your Bibles, folks. We're going to study a new series. You can turn it to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes sits in that rarely seen portion of your Bible. If you need help finding it, grab an usher. Or it comes immediately after Proverbs. So you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And you can put your page ribbon there because we will we'll be there for a little while. Uh, Ecclesiastes... You know, it stands alone in the Bible. It is a very unique book that blends uh, many different styles of literature and writing. It's primarily viewed as wisdom literature. It's one reason that it is positioned right next to Proverbs. But when encountering the title, you know, people often dismiss it quickly, uh, dismiss its benefit as obscure. And, uh, and kind of elusive, you know, Ecclesiastes. You know, you scan through your contents of your Bible and trying to find something to read and you come across Ecclesiastes and, and you probably just flip right past it because like, what, what in the world does that mean? That word doesn't mean anything to us. The closest word to Ecclesiastes that we have in the, in the English language is preacher. Preacher, as you see, it appears in the opening line of verse 1, uh, the words of the preacher. Ecclesiastes is the Greek term that ancient Jewish translators chose to, uh, in place of the original Hebrew, ter- Hebrew term, I'll try not to butcher this, kaholet, kaholet, when Israel first created uh, their original Greek translation of their Hebrew Bible. That became referred to as the Septuagint. Just a little background here. After the Jews returned from decades of exile in Babylon, uh, the majority of the population had lost proficiency in Hebrew. So tradition tells us that the Jews chose 70 translators, 70 scholars, uh, Septuagint means 70, to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into the more common language of Greek. That is a good thing, because by the time of Christ, Greek had become the standard language of the Roman Empire. Uh, That is also the reason that our New Testament books were originally written in Greek. Uh, The ancient Jews recognized that Scripture places no prohibition against responsibly translating the Bible into new languages. In, In fact, Because of this Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the the fresh writings of the Apostles, the Gospels, the Epistles of the New Testament, uh, the early Christians had the entire uh, Bible in the first century in Greek, cover to cover. You only had to know one language in order to read it all, and it was the common language. Uh, Therefore... We support our missionary in India named Kim Hibbard who works with a team 
in Bible translation. She is a Bible languages expert. And she works with a, a team of scholars to translate the Bible into the common languages of India and other nations in the far east. Uh, that too is good because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? Therefore, the gospel, uh, in order to reach the, the whole world, all of the nations, as the Great Commission uh, commands, people need to receive the scriptures in their common daily language that they can understand. You know, Kim Hibbert is, as I mentioned last week, she is back on furlough, and I was able to make contact with her this week. She will be visiting us on April 18th. She's back on furlough. So we look forward to that again. A wonderful, wonderful girl. The original Hebrew title to this book, Kaholet, as I said earlier, was meant to describe someone who gathers others together, gathers them together because this preacher has got something important and urgent to say to the people, has a message for God's people. And it begins in verses 1 and 2. I might as well read it for you now because I'm sure you're all in suspense. And this is as far as we're going to get today. Uh, Let's look at the urgent message beginning in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Oh, he's a cheery fellow, isn't he? You might have been told before how the Hebrew language uh, it doesn't use repeated verbs, adverbs like we do. You know, when we say something tasted really good, we say, oh, well, that was very, very good. It was really, really good. Uh, Hebrew doesn't add emphasis by repeating those adverbs. It adds emphasis by repeating the word itself, all right? And, and uh, here the word that the preacher repeats five times is vanity. And the word means meaningless, all of life as he has experienced it is futile, it is empty, it, it, it is fleeting, completely meaningless. The Hebrew term for vanity is hebel, all right, which is the same Hebrew spelling as the name Abel, Adam and Eve's son, if you remember, uh, who was murdered by his brother Cain. So the proper name Abel means breath, all right? They had the child, uh, God, and, and they named him breath because God gave breath to him, okay? And, and many commentators believe the preacher here, through his introduction to this, this book, is reminding the Jews about Abel, who was murdered, and how fleeting Abel's life became. It was here today, gone Tomorrow, And when God spoke to Cain in Genesis 4 verse 9 and asked, Where is Abel, your brother? God, God is literally asking Cain, after Cain had slain his brother, Where is breath? Where is his breath? And Abel's life, you know, like a vapor, was a breath. It was here one moment Gone the next. Isn't that something? What a way to open a book. The Lord's brother James writes, You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. 
you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Your life is a vapor. That is the wisdom of God, whether we like it or not. Like James, this preacher proclaims, all of life is fleeting, it is vain, it is empty. Happy New Year and welcome to Port St. Lucie Bible Church. <laughs> no wonder nobody ever reads this book, right? They, they, they just can't get beyond that intro. And even for those who do move beyond the intro, they they discover that this preacher invests virtually the whole first seven chapters, reminding us that every type of life's pursuit is completely and utterly meaningless. It's empty. Before you decide to pull out and not come back next Sunday. Uh, If you've ever studied this book with anyone, you already know that when this preacher says that all of life is meaningless, he means as life is experienced under the sun, as we see it in this material world. That phrase, under the sun, serves as a cue throughout this book. It appears 28 different times. And it indicates a life under the sun lived apart from a relationship with God. That's what the the writer is talking about. A life without God, the preacher says, that, that is just meaningless. What is the purpose to that? And he will then spend the bulk of his time bemoaning activities that are pursued without accounting for God. In supreme wisdom... In in just supreme wisdom in this book, he concludes that an atheistic life, a life that believes there is no God and makes no accounting for God, no matter how much you achieve, no matter how many letters you get pinned to your jacket, all right? No matter how much you do without God, it's completely and utterly meaningless apart from Him. Uh, Life without God uh, is, is very, very dark. Very dark. Might have seen a few lips whisper right there. Amen. Amen. It is dark apart from God. So Ecclesiastes not only qualifies as wisdom writing, it also exemplifies a rare genre, a style of writing referred to as pessimism literature. Pessimism literature. Ecclesiastes is pessimistic about life. Don't worry, you're not going to have to schedule extra extra appointments with your counselor. Because throughout this book, as we move through it, we are going to account for God. We, we Especially in revelation to Jesus Christ and what we know through Him. So God's Word is going to turn a worldview that is obviously meaningless and dark apart from God into a meaningful existence in the light of Jesus Christ. You know, folks, today, the, ta- the world has gone nuts. It, it is bizarre. C- completely absurd what people are thinking and doing and saying and, and proposing. It, it, it is completely crazy. And, and uh, we, we, are gonna, we are going to take a journey, uh, as it's titled, From Vanity to Sanity. Because the vanity of this life 
needs to be exchanged for the sanity that comes through God and His Word and through the revelation of His Son. Ecclesiastes is wisdom. It's pessimistic, at least apart from God, it is pessimistic. And it's also historical. This is important. The preacher is not a fictional character. All right, This is not a fairy tale. And he repeatedly draws his guiding principles out of uh, documented real-life cases. Real-life cases. So when he says that he has achieved greatness uh, and wealth above all others, he has truly achieved those things. When he states that he amassed many beautiful wives, he literally uh, collected wives, as horrible as that is. So this preacher, he's not casting out hypothetical scenarios. He's not pontificating hypothetically about what he, he might do with money if he were ever to win the lottery someday and get rich. Well, I think this is what I would probably do. No, he has literally attained uh, splendor beyond any other man who ever came before him and any other man that ever did come until Jesus Christ. Um, the stories and the circumstances that he shares are historically accurate. They truly occurred. Uh, therefore, Ecclesiastes is also autobiographical. It's written by a man about himself. The human author is writing about himself and, and he becomes painfully transparent about his life. He, he, he becomes uh, very transparent about his uh, distorted morality, his character flaws. He's embarrassingly honest in this book. And, and since he does not, therefore, and I believe that's a reason he doesn't identify himself by name directly at least, uh, we need to discern who this writer is. He's somewhat embarrassed about what he has to share. But being the preacher and the proclaimer of what God has, has, has by the Spirit moved him to write down, uh, he must get this message out. And though the author of all Scripture, the supreme author of all Scripture is God, you may have already heard me suggest in, in one of our meetings or perhaps in, in leading up to this that the human writer is King Solomon. How dogmatic can we be about that? Well, there, there is a heap, there's a ton actually of textual, historical, and circumstantial evidence that points to Solomon. Uh, the people of God, that would include the Jews uh, before Christ came, before the Messiah came, and Christians thereafter, have always agreed and universally accepted that King Solomon is the author, the, the human writer of this book. That, that is a position uh, the people of God have had uh, virtually from the beginning through all history. But then in the, about the middle of the 19th century, in, in the 1800s, just following the Age of Enlightenment, man suddenly got smart. You know, that happens. Man, man suddenly uh, comes to himself, gets really, really bright. And in the 1800s, it, it became in vogue for, for theologians, I'll use that in quotes, it became popular for theologians to attempt to question everything about the Bible. Everything about the historical nature of the Bible, the origin of the Bible, became very popular by the middle to the end of the 1800s to question everything about the Bible. 
And, and one of the premier examples of this, the man's newly discovered brilliance, one of the greatest examples was on display in the, in the critique, their critique of the book of Isaiah. For centuries, no manuscript, no ancient manuscript by the prophet Isaiah had been unearthed. There were none in existence, none had been found. And, and since Isaiah's prophecies concerning the Christ, concerning his, his crucifixion, his death, the manner of his death, the resurrection, uh, the Christology that Isaiah writes about, because these were so detailed, so explicit in the book of Isaiah, intellectual academia concluded that uh, Isaiah had to have been written by somebody pretending to be Isaiah. Someone who came along writing long after Christ. This was the argument in the colleges in Princeton and in Yale and in Harvard where there are really, really smart people. And they were saying that this this book of Isaiah had to have been written by someone well after Christ who was claiming to be Isaiah, possibly even as late as 700 A.D., they claimed. Well, for the intellectual elite to believe, for them to believe that the writing of Isaiah could have come at any point before Christ, that, that was just laughable. Just laughable. And their dogmatic presumption prevailed in liberal scholarship and in our universities until 1947. And many of you know what happened in 1947. I'll tell the ones who don't. The Qumran caves, which are caves in Israel, were discovered, and archaeologists unearthed what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've probably heard that name before. Uh, Many scrolls, there were hundreds and hundreds of ancient manuscripts, both biblical and extra-biblical, and it included uh, within these manuscripts a complete scroll of Isaiah written in Hebrew. And, And the dating of this scroll was verified by secular archaeologists, carbon dating, every way you could do it. Um, It was verified as having been written long before Christ. And and the evidence was so overwhelming, so overwhelming, that virtually all secular scholarship instantaneously abandoned the idea of a late writing of Isaiah. Overnight, they just had to give that up. So now they don't even want to talk about Isaiah anymore because it points so directly at Christ and his crucifixion um, for our sins. Many of these are the same human institutions we're talking about that still insist Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes. Someone had to have come later and and offer this writing. And they, they give many arguments. If you look into this, you'll run into some. So I just wanted to to cover it briefly. Some of them claim that the use of the Hebrew words in Ecclesiastes, they weren't in high enough circulation back in Solomon's time, about 950 B.C. And so he couldn't have used these words. They said this style of writing that's called pessimism literature had not yet been developed. They suggest the presence of a narrator that appears in this book, suggests that somebody else probably wrote Ecclesiastes centuries after King Solomon had died. And they ask, by the way, if Solomon actually did write it, why didn't he simply sign his name to it? Well, in one way, I would suggest that Solomon did. 
I would say that he did. If you were to flip open to the opening chapter of Proverbs, you don't, you don't have to. It's just one book earlier, um, but I will read it to you. These are the opening words to Proverbs as you look, some of you, uh, at the opening words of Ecclesiastes, all right? Proverbs 1 verse 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. The opening words of Ecclesiastes say, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I would propose, without giving his name directly, that is Solomon's signature. Uh, there was no doubt about it in, among the Jews previously. Uh, in the Old Testament, they had always accepted Ecclesiastes as being by Solomon. And all of the doubts that the brilliant people have are, are, have rational answers to them. The best scholarship affirms that the Hebrew words used in this book actually were in existence and in circulation during the time that Solomon was king. Professors of ancient literature have found, and they have affirmed, that this style of pessimism writing did not originate long after Solomon. They've actually found evidence of this style used in several other kingdoms at the same time as Solomon. It was a common type of literature when Solomon reigned. So Ecclesiastes was not an invention by an imposter long after Solomon. If it were, if it were, the Hebrews would have never accepted it as Scripture. They would have never received it as such. Jews maintained an extremely high threshold for accepting the written prophecy of Scripture. They had a very low tolerance of imposters who said they were other prophets writing on their behalf. They did not accept such things. Believing Israel did not accept prophecy from any random origin. You know, to embrace false prophecies spewed by anybody from anywhere at any time, you know, that would be America, right? That would be the United States. They'll just say, oh, you got a prophecy for me? I'll, I'll take it. That's Americans. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Um, that would be uncharacteristic of believing Jews. Um, by the way, just a little note here. Do you know why we don't have to stone false prophets anymore? In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, if someone prophesied presumptuously, let's say, for instance, that they prophesied that someone might win a certain football game, or if they were to prophesy that one person uh, were to become president and another person not, if they were to prophesy such things, and it didn't happen in Israel, you know what the law required them to do. Yeah, they would be stoned. That, that was, that was the, the gauge of the Old Testament and the way that the Hebrews were um, instructed. So you were not to tolerate such people that po- prophesied falsely. In the New Testament, why do you think we don't do that? Why do you think we don't have to... Have to uh, eliminate those people. Well, it's because the Bible is very clear itself. We're told in 1 Corinthians, we've studied this on Wednesday night just recently, that prophecies will be done away. We, we read at the end of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, that if any man adds to the prophecies written in this book, if any man adds to them, 
then he will be added to them the, the plagues associated in this book. That, that is the plagues of final judgment that are being described there. You don't add to God's prophetic revelation, all right? So for Christians, when we hear something, utter something, and they say that they're speaking for God, we don't have to stone them. We just ignore them because they're not speaking for God. The scriptures were given down by the prophecy spoken by Christ and his apostles. Those are authoritative. People aren't going around prophesying anymore, so we don't really have to do anything except for ignore them. The ancient Hebrews accepted Solomon as the writer, and the president of Wheaton College, Philip Riken, says this, Who else could say, as he does in the letter, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. No one but Solomon, says Riken, because God promised him a wise and discerning mind like no one before or after, with riches beyond compare. John MacArthur, of, uh, president of the Master's Seminary, writes, Once Solomon is accepted as the author, the date and occasion become clear. Solomon was writing probably in his latter years, no later than 931 B.C., primarily to warn the young people of his kingdom to avoid walking through life on the path of human wisdom. He exhorted them to live by the revealed wisdom of God. And that's where Solomon will land at the end of this book. So the Hebrew people, Christian tradition, the church, internal evidence in Ecclesiastes... The best Christian scholarship all agree that Solomon is the preacher. Uh, therefore, I'm going to refer to him as such throughout the course of this book. Some might ask, you know, why did I choose to, to preach through Ecclesiastes? That, that's a good question. You know, I, I like to alternate between Old Testament and New because all Scripture is God-breathed and useful, right? It's all profitable. And, and we just saw at the end of Luke, the resurrected Christ appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. And Luke writes, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the, concern, uh, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So, so this is the approach of Christ. Because the evidence of Christ is woven throughout the Old Testament. It's there everywhere. Using the Old Testament is how the apostles originally preached Christ. Before the, before the Gospels, before the epistles were written, they were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And so it's a grievous error to set the Old Testament Scriptures aside and forsake the embarrassment of riches contained therein. It is incredible what we discover in the Old Testament about Jesus if you've been with us a few years, you remember that we've gone through uh, books like Ruth and then Jonah and, and how incredible those books were, how rich they were in Christology, in, in revealing to us the truth about our Savior and, and uh, the wisdom of God. Uh, so they're, they're wonderfully rich books. I'll be honest, I, um, I miss those, those occasions because going through Jonah... I never really know when starting a book how it's all going to flush out. So I do have a little apprehension. It was the same when I started Luke as well. I'm like, man, that's a, that's a long book. How long is it going to take us to get through there? But through Jonah 
and Ruth and the other books that we've done, uh, there's a little apprehension on my mind whenever we start a new one. But now with, uh, with history behind us and we see how rich and, and how these books unfold, I'm actually excited. I'm really excited even though I don't know everything that we're going to mine in here. In fact, I've just barely begun uh, to even frame this out. Uh, but I know by the time we get there, it's going to be incredible. It was the same with Ruth. It was the same with Jonah. Uh, by the time we got through the book, it was like, wow, look what God has done. So I'm expecting uh, similar results even from Ecclesiastes. Jesus assures the Jews in John 5 verse 39 that the Hebrew Old Testament testifies to him. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me, says Christ, so that you may have life. So the Old Testament, when viewed through the lens of Jesus, it grants eternal and abundant life. Not only do we learn about our Savior and our sin and the redemption that is available uh, through God and the provision that He has supplied, we also live a richer life through studying these, these books. The new series that Pastor Weiler is about to start in Bible study group, in a Bible Life study group on Sundays. It is called Jesus in Exodus, right? And it's going to be a series where they're mapping through what, what we learn about Christ in the book of Exodus. That's going to start what date? The 24th of January. Um, you'll want to probably want to get to that. Get the kids to Sunday school and attend Bible Life group. Youth group and children's choir resume on Wednesday the 6th. That's the Wednesday after this one. Wednesday the 13th. Yes, the one after that. Wednesday the 13th. And uh, our midweek meetings then will we'll supply that balance again. The kids are going to be starting, the youth group's going to be starting a series that is on finances, as we, as we said earlier. That the children's choir is going to be, again, doing a video study and singing. And then they're going to bring that, that wonderful talent back and they're going to sing to us on Sundays. So it's a wonderful balance. Uh, I encourage everyone with this new year uh, to pursue these opportunities. They're wonderful. I chose Ecclesiastes because it is God's wisdom, not man's. It's given by divine grace to improve our Christian experience in this life. That is what Ecclesiastes will do for us. So I wanted to teach some wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes offers God's wisdom through the exploits of a man, the son of David, a king in Jerusalem. And a king, he's a king who blows it in many different ways. He really blows it. Uh, yet, for us, it is far less painful to learn our life's lesson from someone else than to have to experience it ourselves. Why would anyone want to learn the hard way? You know, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. We know better now. We know better now to learn from God's Word uh, the truths that He has for us. You know, if I had known somebody else who was in prison and, uh, and they told me about what it was like in prison and he says it is awful, you know, I'm just going to take his word for it. I really am. That was a mistake. I'm going to take your word for it. I'm not going to try and go find out for myself. 
That sounds funny because it's an obvious lesson that we all, we all have learned. But how about when someone who has been there, who has been through life's trials and, and tragedies, how about when he li- laments about how he has invested his whole life in things that are utterly meaningless, in gold, in silver, in concubines, and then he discovered after decades, after living his whole life uh, under the sun, he discovered his whole life was meaningless. Are we going to still live our lives pursuing those same things? Those empty, vain things, uh, like Solomon did. And, and then do we want to look back and lament as well uh, over decades of our life that are scattered like a debris field? Who wants to do that? That's what Solomon has done in order to make our lives uh, more pleasurable and, and to be a glory to God. Uh, we're going to need to uh, excuse me, embrace and adjust to finding our pleasure in God rather than finding our pleasure under the sun. Folks, that is a no-brainer. That, that's an easy one. Here's the plan of what we're going to do. We're going to allow Solomon... We're going to allow him to play his part. He, he, he plays the role of an alienated philosopher, uh, lamenting and asking questions about life, trying to discover the meaning of life as it is under the sun apart from God. He almost sounds like one of your atheistic college professors. Some of you might remember some of those who are just, just upset with everything. What is the meaning of life? Why do I get up in the morning? You know, what is the purpose? Why doesn't having more money make me any happier? Why, why do I keep wanting more even when I already don't enjoy what I have? Have thought about that? Why do we keep wanting more of it when we aren't even satisfied with the little we already have or the much we already have? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they prosper under the sun? All these questions will be asked. And then we're going to respond by playing our proper role as Christians. Uh, We will be theologians. We will bring in God's answers. Uh, We'll find our answers in the Bible and in Christ. And each week we should leave here with with a divine adjustment. Kind of like when you go to the chiropractor. It'll be a little crack. Right? Just a divine adjustment. It'll hurt a little bit. Just for a moment. But then as you walk out, you're going to go, ah. That, that, that is so much better. Find our satisfaction in God rather than our material, emotional, or social circumstances. And along the way, we're going to enlist a lot of help, plenty of help. Solomon was a Hebrew. He lived in a Far East culture in the ancient Near East uh, during a generation far removed from us, long ways from us. There are going to be a few things in this book that are a little bit hard for us to understand. I've enlisted the help of some really good resources. They're going to help us, help us and guide us along the way. You know my earlier remark at the opening, that vanity is the same word as able, and it implies, just as experienced by able, that, that life like a breath is here today and gone tomorrow, that, that connection of that word there. Yeah, you don't think I just came up with that on my own, do you? No, no. We need to rely on the best scholarship of credible experts, 
theologians who can bridge that, that chasm of time and culture uh, and of language between us and Solomon. And uh, I've got some great stuff to share with you along the way. I'm going to share, you, share with you a quote right now from, from my old pastor, Tom Nelson. He wrote a book, uh, a study on the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a great summary study guide, kind of a short commentary, and it's titled, A Life Well Lived. Really great stuff in here. And, and Tom, Tom has a profound quote. I'm going to share one of them from Tom's book here. And uh, are you ready? This is profound right here. This is what preacher Tom says. I don't know a lick of Hebrew, but I, know, but I read the guys who do. So that's what we're going to do here. And, and then Tom goes on to credit a man named Walt Kaiser, who was a Hebrew scholar and expert who eventually became president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. A, a brilliant mind. Walt Kaiser, I think, is still alive. Some of these guys have, have really bridged time, space, and culture in order to bring us closer to what Ecclesiastes teaches. Uh, so like Tom, I'm going to solicit the help of many others along the way, really brilliant people, especially with the Hebrew language. Uh, that, that's tough stuff. And before I ask the men in a moment to come forward to distribute the Lord's Supper, I've got a true story from one of my old professors at Dallas Seminary. The professor was Dr. James Allman, and uh, he would read to my class sections of the Old Testament, and then he would stop along the way and uh, explain problem areas as he would be reading through passages of Scripture, especially difficult passages of Scripture. And like everyone else, you know, I would follow along in my Bible while listening to him read, and most of the time his words were identical, followed along with mine, but from time to time he would stop. It'd be like a really brief, momentary stutter. And, and he would speak an alternative word uh, to fill in the place, or he would speak a couple words, and he would stutter and continue on. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what version of the Bible is he using? I'm just thinking, what's going on here? Because Dallas Seminary broadly uses the New American Standard, as, as do I. And most of the time, what Dr. Allman was reading matched perfectly. Right? perfectly aligned, and, and then when he would substitute a word, it, it would be almost identical meaning with a little different flavor. And it took me about three weeks to catch on, because I'm slow. I'm a slow person. But after about three weeks, I'm like, what, what is going on here? And, and as he left for break one day, he left his Bible propped open on the lectern. And I said, I'm going to sneak up there and find out what translation of the Bible he was reading from. And as I approached to look, I got all cross-eyed. It was like, it was. It's like, you look at, the, look at the lectern. I had to shake my head just a bit, thinking that I needed glasses. I wasn't wearing glasses yet at that time. But then I realized that he was reading aloud to us at, at about the same pace that I do during Scripture reading time. And Dr. Allman was reading out of a Hebrew text and instantaneously translating it in his mind and speaking it in English. Just amazing some of the resources we have. Uh, pretty incredible. Uh, I've not met, met many people who can do something like that. He was actually tasked by, uh, by uh, a Bible translating organization to translate Proverbs in, uh, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. 
But uh, there are a lot of resources out there. These people have amazing uh, abilities. We're going to utilize those. And uh, there's some pretty incredibly difficult Hebrew in Ecclesiastes. And we're just going to have to rely on the scholars who are proven as credible sources for us 